everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started during this work-from-home period with leader, leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're trying to do on these SALT Talks is the same thing we try to do at our global SALT conferences, which is provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Gary Hall and Hector Negroni to SALT Talks. Uh, Gary Hall is a partner with Siebert Williams Shank & Company, which is the nation's largest minority-owned investment bank. And he's also a partner with American III Partners, which is an infrastructure private equity firm. Uh, he formerly was an investment banker with J.P. Morgan, an attorney with Gardner, Carton & Douglas, a White House fellow assigned to the U.S. Department of Treasury, and he worked in Chicago Mayor Richard M. Daly's administration. Uh, Gary serves on the advisory board at the University of Chicago Harris Public Policy Schools Center for M Municipal Finance and the board of directors of the Bay Area Council. He's a Chicago native, but currently lives in the Bay Area. He's a trustee with the National Recreation Foundation and Las Trampas, an organization that supports adults with developmental disabilities. Uh, Hector Negroni is the co-founder and co-chief executive officer and uh, chief investment officer of Fundamental Credit Opportunities, or FCO. Uh, Hector has been a pioneer in proprietary trading in the municipal market for over 20 years, leading innovation in public-private financing, military housing privatization, basis arbitrage, tender option bond securitization, municipal derivatives, and a host of other structured solutions. Prior to forming FCO, he was the head of municipal trading at Goldman Sachs, overseeing all capital commitments, flow trading, money markets, collateralized lending, and issuer derivatives. Hector joined Goldman Sachs as a managing director in 2005 to build and lead the municipal proprietary trading and structured products businesses. Just a reminder, if you have a question for Gary or Hector during today's SALT talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. And hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the talk. Well, John, thank you. It's great to be on with you guys. I was looking forward to this. I've got so many different things I want to talk to you guys about. Uh, and I'm not going to, I want it to be free form. Okay. So Hector, Gary, I'm not going to, Hector, Gary, let's, Let's take it around the horn. And then, of course, John's going to come on at the end. He's going to try to bigfoot us with his southern charm and try to impress people. But our job right now is to just block him from the conversation, okay? So let's... Anthony, it takes, it takes Hector 45 minutes to say hello. So I hope you have electric shock around him. Okay. All right. Well, let me get... Let, 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 Darcy, turn that on high voltage, okay? I want to see Hector stand straight up, Okay. All right, so now listen, let's go to the municipal markets, credit market, investment grade, high yield, structured credit. What the hell is going on? And where do you see things over the next three to six months? Let's start with Hector. And I got the buzzer on, Hector. Let's go. Thanks for having us, Anthony. We really appreciate it. Look forward to kind of highlighting this marketplace. Listen, one of the things that's the hardest thing to understand about municipals is how fragmented it is. You know, the world isn't one broad brush here. You know, what's happening in the state of California or New York City is far different than what might be happening in Indianapolis or Santa Fe. And that's why this market matters so much. 
this market is the core center piece of how we deliver essential services and public infrastructure across the United States. But we do it in a very ununiform fashion. The decisions are all very local. They all reflect preferences and differences, geographic and cultural. And so as a result, it's a really, really unique and layered marketplace that creates, that has extraordinary opportunities around it. And importantly, at this time in this juncture, especially with COVID, the, you know, the pandemic's had very different effects and has created different needs and different opportunities. So we think it's a very exciting, but really nuanced place. And it takes subject matter experts like myself and Gary to be able to address it. Um, I'm sure you're going to want to dig into a lot of the questions, but let me, let me leave you with this. For the most part, the municipal marketplace is sound, not over-levered, and not struggling with a wave of, of prospective defaults, but it's certainly challenged. The needs of infrastructure and the needs to provide essential services, both previous to the pandemic and as a result of the pandemic, are accelerated, and attention to this marketplace is worth all of our time. Gary. Yeah, you know, the only thing I, I typically like to start off with a, a little uh, cherry pie and patriotism, right? Um, the municipal market funded the Erie Canal. Um, it funded the Golden Gate Bridge during the Depression, I would say. Um, the Hudson Dam and a host of other major infrastructure projects um, around the country. And all of these projects were built with taxpayers at the time paying back that debt that we all benefit from today. Uh, so from time to time, I know we have this sort of disparate view about government and its ability to operate and, and, and manage assets. Uh, but these are really important investments that we need to make in our country. The other thing I would add is that, you know, we had uh, 119 corporate uh, bankruptcies. Uh, in 2019. There have been 700 municipal bank bankruptcies in 100 years. And 90% of the, the notional value of all bankruptcy are with four issuers, you know, Jefferson County, Washington Power, uh, Puerto Rico, and Detroit. And so it's extremely safe and risk riskless market. Uh, and it's one that has weathered a storm. In 20, 2008, you know, high yield corporate bonds lost 30, 30% of its value. Municipal bonds in that same market held steady. So it's one of those things that, you know, as we go through economic cycles and you're looking for some steady risk-weighted sort of returns, it's a place to go. So why, though? Why is it safe? Well, I go ahead, Gary. No, no, you go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. So for me, it's, it's a little – Gary, this is a great place to draw a distinction between the way Gary and I might look at the marketplace. Uh, I largely serve investors who aren't the traditional investors in the space, large pensions, endowments, and foundations, people who don't even pay taxes in the United States. And when you think about municipals, you largely think about the exemption. And the reason is, is all this unusual uh, fragmentation creates really different return profiles that aren't, un that aren't, that aren't just a long-only taxes and marketplace, meaning we, are, we think that there's a lot of ways of playing credits against each other. Uh, betting on credits to have you know, a particular upside or downside. And so we will focus on the absolute return profile of the marketplace. So it's less about it being safe and more about it being a really rich pool of opportunities for absolute return. That's our focus. I do think it's largely got good upside relative to downside from a credit perspective, but we're much more focused on absolute return. Carry your perspective, probably. Yeah, you know, so we gotta remind folks that it's a 72% retail oriented market. You know, with most of your uh, most of it being buy and hold, um, and, and that means that folks have a long view. And so, what we're starting to see now, Anthony, is that investors are are really being inquisitive 
uh, about the, the broader context and operating metrics of, of governments. So as opposed to just looking at the objective financial metrics, they're, they're asking themselves the tough questions. Who has the political will to make the tough decisions as we go through, through COVID and, and as expenses go up and revenues go down, right? Uh, what are their, the decision powers with respect to opening up government? And how does that impact the triggers of the economic uh, centers? Um, all these sort of subjective factors that, quite frankly, we have not really examined um, in the way that the corporate market has. Uh, we're now training our municipal issues to be a little bit more savvy about uh, making forward-looking statements to talk about where they're where the puck is going. Um, so from that standpoint, um, there is a little bit more credit differentiation going on post-COVID. Think about it, Anthony, from your perspective. When's the last time you sat around and talked to a bunch of people about the municipal marketplace? It's what's happening in the world right now that is changing the dynamics of it that may actually kind of make it interesting, whether it be because of policy or changes in credit. You know, that's the real difference now. This marketplace is now very interesting and very compelling and should be compared to global large scale marketplaces like corporate IG and high yield. That's right. And we've got 150 billion mark of taxable bonds in our market. You know, you know, this market has, has, has never seen this sort of volume of, of, of taxable issuance. Right. Um, and as we have 10 year uh, muni to 10 year treasuries hovering at 100 and 200 and 300 um, percent on a relative value basis, folks are figuring, figuring out that it's, it's, it's a cost effective market to be in. and You can get some upside. Are there are there any. COVID-19 innovations. And, and what I mean by that is we have a lot of small businesses in these cities that are suffering, the restaurant industry in particular. Is, is it possible to have a war bond-like strategy where you go out to the public and say, we're going to raise it through the municipality and the municipality is going to feed the small businesses? Or is this all infrastructure and bridges and roads, tunnels and subways. No, no, you raise a very interesting point. I mean, one of the things we have to think about with these vaccines is going to take uh, these really intricate refrigeration type of storage facilities in order to store these vaccines, right? Um, and, and who's going to build these? Who's going to store these all over the country? Most of, um, uh, of, of urban America um, 60%, 62% have, you know, are health deserts. And so you're not going to have a pharmacy there that's going to, where you can get your vaccine. You're going to have to build out infrastructure in order to get access to these vaccines. I think that's an opportunity um, where a war bond type structure can really help some of these local, state and local governments really get these vaccines out in the marketplace. And in addition to, to our, our normal practices in municipal credit, both Gary and I have separate strategies focused on infrastructure alone. And when we think about that, we don't think about them in the traditional avenue of bridges and roads. So he offered up an example around testing and vaccination, the logistics of that. Super interesting as a public safety matter and frankly, as, an, as a confidence reinstillment matter to get people back to school and back, back to work and back to school. And on the point of getting back to school, think about it. I have two kids, teenagers. They're school from home. You know, I'm working from home on occasion. You know, the, the infrastructure of broadband, the infrastructure of telecommunications access is now a new essential services that local governments have to think about how they play a role in. And that's a hard thing. You know, governments are good at a lot of things. They're really good at, at you know, operations risk. They're not very comfortable with technology. And so there's an excellent opportunity for the pandemic to have created new evolutions of how technology and, and governments can work together. And that kind of glue the things together is private capital and private expertise. 
I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Hector. In, in fact, uh, the cooperation between these pharmaceutical gov- uh, companies and government it can set a predicate for how uh, the private sector can work with governments to optimize um, and bring technology and innovation to some traditional services that we provide. Uh, Parking, whether it's airports, things of that sort. I mean, we, I think we are on the cutting edge, uh, a real sort of gateway to a lot of innovation taking place in traditional public services. And I wouldn't want to dismiss, I mean, Anthony, I know you're, you're curious probably or around the federal intersection. Look, roughly three quarters out of every dollar spent on some version of infrastructure is spent at the local level, procured by decisions made all locally. But the federal government will have a role here. Frankly, the new administration has already stood up a clear initiative, you know, with its co-chairs of infrastructure to think about how they're going to aid, you know, the development. It'll happen at the local level, but the federal government's likely add a nice tailwind. So we're excited about that as another dimension of opportunity in our space. You 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 mentioned the Biden administration, uh, and we know that many states, particularly the ones that were hit hardest with COVID. Uh, and municipalities, states and cities are underfunded right now, uh, and there's shortfalls. In New York State, I think it's close to $30 billion. So do you expect the Biden administration in a potential stimulus to help those states? Or if they don't help those states, what happens to those states strategically? Uh, what, what, what do you think the permutation of outcomes may be? I, I think it largely depends on what happens in Georgia, right? Um, if, if, if the Senate is controlled by the Democrats, Democrats, I think you see probably a larger probability of a heavy stimulus package that's going to aid state and local governments. Um, if not, I think you're going to see a fight on your hands um, as to where, where those resources go. Uh, I think they are badly needed. Uh, going back to the Biden administration, you know, I know there are some high aims to have uh, zero emissions by, you know, 2050 and, and uh, total clean energy by 2035. And so this is going to take, uh, there's a huge ambition um, in, in that administration in order to, to really fund infrastructure projects, especially smart cities and things of that sort. Um, but the cooperation in a bicameral way uh, from Congress is going to be extremely important. I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm unfortunately a little skeptical about the likelihood of a meaningful uh, stimulus bill from, from the federal government, largely for a lot of the reasons Gary's pointed out. Uh, you know, divided government is probably going to be a bit of a headwind to that. But it doesn't mean it's not needed. I mean, you know, the roughly the, the shortfall of revenues for next year is estimated to be about a trillion dollars, you know, a little bit less than half that states. And then the other half of that is cities and counties. And that's not even going into the shortfall for the public agencies. So there's a lot of revenue shortfalls that are going to happen. Now, importantly, that doesn't mean the car is racing into the wall at 80 miles an hour. It's very different at all jurisdictions. You know, in some large states, you know, you identified New York, you know, New Jersey and Florida and Texas and, and California, they're all hovering in a 15 to 20 percent revenue decline. Those are big shocks. They'll be meaningful. You know, but big states have a lot of resources to be able to address it. They can do a lot of different things. They have more diversified economies to be able to absorb those shocks. I'm worried further downstream. My bigger concern is the more marginal and smaller communities that were weak going into the pandemic are going to probably be worse off if there's not a meaningful distribution of federal support here. Unfortunately, the federal government likes to think of it like uh, like a circulatory system. They push blood out, they push money out the door, and it goes down to the furthest capillary down the system. It doesn't really work like that in the real world. And so we're really going to need a really dedicated um, a really dedicated effort that probably goes beyond just block grants to states. Um, I think you're going to have to see something really um, detailed. And I'm just skeptical the government really can pull that off. And so I do think 
The downside of it is, while I think that there's some really great opportunities in our space, I do think there's going to be a great dispersion in credit and probably a downward migration. Like I said, if you entered the pandemic in pretty good shape, you might be slightly worse off, but you'll be okay. If you entered in weak shape, I'm a little more pessimistic on credit. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Hector. And another thing I'm concerned about is the bait and switch, right? You know, so the, those those states that are suffering for some systemic budgetary issues, you know, driven by pension liability and post-retirement medical liability, you, you can't use your stimulus to fix that problem. Ironically, uh, the state with the least funded pension fund is Kentucky. Um, and so it's not just a, a red state, a blue state issue. It, it, it's, it's, it's bipartisan with those, those sort of systemic issues. But this whole notion of realigning benefits uh, with the economic realities of the tax base that currently exists is something that government needs to address. Um, and this whole notion of giving out these very, very generous benefit packages um, to really, really tie future taxpayers' hands is something that definitely has to be ameliorated and cannot be addressed, uh, in my view, with a stimulus package. If you if you could be the municipal bonds czar or the infrastructure czar and you were putting together a list of priorities, let's say that uh, every mayor or every governor had to answer to both of you, what would be the things that you would be thinking about? Number one, um, through the tax reform that Trump instituted, um, the elimination of advanced refundings for taxes and debt with taxes and debt was taken away, right? Say it differently, if you have a mortgage and you could not refinance, um, that's an extremely uh, a, a tool that's being taken away from you to stabilize your budgetary situation. So I would get that back. Number two, the expansion of private activity bonds to allow innovation back into the marketplace, like we've seen before, um, that Hector and I was speaking of before, where you actually invite, uh, you know, ingenuity and, and innovation from, from private entities coming in and helping to optimize governments. Number three, which I think is really critically important, um, is this whole notion of making sure that we get some build America bond aspect back to it. You know, in, in 2010 and 2011, we had about $180 billion of build American bonds, deepening the investor base, making foreign sovereigns and others attracted to the municipal market. That allowed for a tremendous amount of efficiency and cost-effective borrowing during that time. I'm pretty much really aligned with, with uh, Gary on this. You know, our specific list, very simply, kind of is organized around a common principle of creating scalable funding vehicles. One of the problems the federal government does, you know, they practice a little bit of like um, laboratory experimentation on the municipal marketplace occasionally. Hey, let's come up with this random tax credit tchotchke that can only be attracted to this one little sliver of the world because I want to have some directed impact. And rather than creating uniformity, what they should do is create a single permanent taxable bond direct subsidy. Like Gary said, we call it the Build Back America bonds, right? <laughs> going back going back to you know Biden's notion, right? I love um, it. Create a single universal tax credit. So whether it be solar, wind, or lower income, create the tax credit that's uniform and transferable. We need to create scalability for these funding tools that will draw the amounts of global capital that can make a big, meaningful difference. We keep resting our hopes on financing on the backs of a primary retail taxpaying audience in the United States. It's incredibly limiting. Yeah. We're under The market's pretty undercapitalized relative to our needs. If we have a trillion-dollar need or a multi-trillion-dollar need, you know, borrowing it all from the U.S. taxpayer 
probably isn't the deepest pool of capital. It's not the flexible pool of capital. So creating a uniform bond structure that can be broader, you know, not, not necessarily to the detriment of tax exemption, but in competition with tax exemption to create efficiency, creating a single universal tax credit, streamlining the federal guarantee program. So you also have at-risk capital and development capital. Okay. And so, and, and it, with that, you have to have a spirit of encouraging a participation with private capital, you know, Somehow it would be great if there was a central solutions desk at the federal government. I generally never hoped that, I generally never expect that to happen, but that's aspirationally what you'd want to have. You'd want to create a, a uniformity around how, you know, the subsidies of governments are delivered to local governments. They're going to make the decisions on where the projects are and how the projects should be built and what the scope should be and the procurement. But the, the money could come in a uniform fashion from the federal government if it followed those paths. The last thing I'd say is, you know, I, I, I want to focus on ad adopting, you know, uh, encouraging the adoption of new technologies and new revenue streams. Bro I go back to broadband. How are we going to create a comfort level for governments to get involved in the broadband business? It's not straightforward, but it's important that they do. How do they get comfortable with embracing 5G technology and all the other issues that I'm not as fluent on so that they can partner with private capital to solve our problems? Yeah. You know, one, one thing that we did mention at the outset, Anthony, is how uh, heterogeneous the municipal market is. You know, we've got 50,000 issuers, a million QCIPs, right, um, in, in, the, in, in the municipal market. I mean, that's extremely fragmented market. Um, and you, you've got issuers for, uh, in a mini market of $100,000 to, to, to multi-billions, right? Uh, and trying to serve an, an investor base with that sort of fragmentation is very, very difficult. And so being able to expand it, get access to foreign sovereigns, and, and deepen that buyer base is going to be critical to be able to fund these uh, infrastructure needs going forward. Yeah, so, I, I, you know, it, it's funny, we, you know, the municipal marketplace and in, infrastructure financing largely in the United States, the way we do it, the market, it's an accident, right? It's an accident born out of 150 years of history with 50 different jurisdictions and different projects and different tolerances for risk and different tolerances for for uh, for credit quality. And, and, and so we can't eliminate that with a wand. It's not like we're going to turn this into some into some national agency market with, you know, 50 infrastructure state banks. But the best thing we can do is when the dollars are going to come and when the support's going to come from the federal government, have it as homogenized as possible. Because as Gary said, it's a very heterogeneous universe you're applying it to. So let them have as homogeneous a building block as possible. And that's how you really make the difference. One other thing I left out is kind of what I call leveling the playing field, which is, you know, we always talk about wanting to have the best people operate assets. So a common topic is an airport. Yep. Maybe it's good that we partner, partner with private capital to do that. But private capital should be available able to be able to avail itself of the same tools that a, that a municipal issuer has. For example, a pension fund should be able to acquire a U.S. pension fund, should have an interest in it facilitating the development of a local asset, but doesn't do so because they can't borrow against that asset as efficiently as a city or county can. Right. So, you know, untapping that, cracking that open so that, you know, U.S. public pensions can be a bigger part of the engagement of public assets and stewardship of public assets. It's a really big focus of our fund. And, and, and not only that, I mean, one of the, the, the huge bottlenecks in, in projects getting done is the Byzantine procurement process that are involved in governments, right? Um, so first of all, in, in government um, contracting, they can't go out and lock in the cost of construction, whether it be pricing the raw materials, unless they have dollars in hand, right? That, that limits them exponentially. Since 2010, the cost of the construction on a PPI basis has gone up 20 to 30%. 
these projects are getting more and more expensive, right? And so being able to escape that Byzantine process and taking the length of time to get these projects done from start to finish is going to be critically important in, in things getting done, not only cost effectively, but actually to serve the infrastructure needs of the country. You, you, you both know a lot about the salt income tax deductions and the cap. Um, you, you, you probably are going to be surprised by this, but I don't talk to President Trump that often anymore. I know you're both, I know you're both shocked by that, so don't, don't be overly alarmed. But the, one of the last times- Is it I the language, talked, Anthony? Well, you know, listen, you know, when I when I used to talk to him, he used to talk over me anyway, so I'm not really sure <laughs> it really matter. But but uh, when the salt tax came up and he had a conversation with me, obviously I was already fired out of the government. I said, well, what do you think of it? I said, well, listen, I'm not talking as a blue stater. I, I think it's a mistake because what happens is these blue states, primarily these port cities in the Northeast and obviously the West Coast are the bridges for the immigrants and they're bridges for great technological innovation in these teeming cities usually some of the best product ideas the best economic innovations come out of these parts of the country and it acts like an electrification or domino effect around the country and if you're depleting their resources of course there's going to be poor people in those areas and they need a safety net and so if you're going to de be depleting their resources, and we all know that New York is putting more into the federal government than it's taking out, as is right. California and some yep. of the other states, uh, you're, you're going to harm the entire economic system. And so he talked over me. I guess he wasn't really paying attention. Am I right about that? Am I wrong about that? And what are your thoughts on SALT? And will the Democrats, if they retake the Senate, reinstall SALT? I think they will. Um, and I think it's going to, it's, 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 it's a critical need, you know, in 2020, um, just on income taxes alone, we're going to see a reduction of about, uh, 32 billion, um, in, in income taxes for state and local governments in 2021, that rises up to about 41 billion in 2022, 50 billion. So somebody's going to have to, that funding gap has got to be filled somewhere. And so I, I think you're going to see a huge lobbying um, by by these these governors, um, both blue and red states, um, to get that reinstated. I'm I'm, a, I'm an old school states rights guy. Um, you know, my view is, you know, generally speaking, when the federal government forgets about how much is done at the local level and mandates downstream, um, whether it be through like, unfunded mandates or you know, or or, or or trying to take more of the tax dollars share by disallowing the salt deductions, it's just federal tyranny. And and I really I'm I'm just generally against it as a policy matter. And so yeah, I think it'd, it'd be nice if you can make. Truth be told, you know, we have lots of problems. The salt deduction isn't at the top of my list. But yeah, I don't think it's anything. You know, the, the absent it should it should be restored. It's a reasonable it's a reasonable thing if you if you're honest with yourself about how the the trade off of the equilibrium is between dollar flows between the federal government and the local governments. Okay, well, I I uh, I've got to turn it over to Mr. Darcy, who unfortunately is younger than the three of us. Thinks he's better. Barely, barely. Yeah, he thinks he's better looking than the three of us. And I'm talking to you, Negroni. Pay attention, okay? And so I'm turning it over to him. He's got a ton of uh, of questions coming in. We've got great audience participation today. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, John Dorsey. Thank you, Anthony, for the kind introduction. Um, 
ESG investing is is a trend that's sweeping the asset management universe. And I'm curious whether that's an exception for the municipal market or how ESG is invading your work in terms of trying to drive good outcomes that fit with ESG mandates. And this, this is a, a big issue for Hector, so I'm going to give him a majority of time on this one. Um, but I, I just give you a couple of stats. You know, we're up from 2017 to 2019, 200% in ESG issuance in the bond market, in municipal bond market, right? We're hovering close to 18 billion or so we expect to, or to 20 billion uh, this year, which is sizable. Um, and, and we're seeing this is an investor uh, base that is growing. I will tell you that we can't quantify a pricing difference in the market today, today. Um, but, but from time to time when deals need an anchor investor that can get in and, and, and enrich uh, the amount of orders that they'll provide on a particular deal, if it's ESG eligible, um, you, you'll find they'll do so. One failure, I'll admit, because um, Anthony mentioned about being the czar of the municipal industry. I actually was at one point. I was the chair of the MSRB. Uh, and one failure that I, that I did not do on my watch was having a centralized platform to make sure that, um, especially for secondary trading, that, that investors can go in and see if, if, if projects are still compliant. So there's no way, after the original issuance, there's some vetting going on to verify that it's ESG eligible. Once that's done, there's no way to check to see if that project is continually um, to, be, to be compliant with that. And so if you've got debt outstanding for 30 years, you're trading in year 15, and you originally had an ESG project, you don't know in year 15 whether or not it's still ESG eligible, right? Um, and so there has to be a way of having some centralized way to see to make government stay on top of that and making sure they're, they're keeping these projects um, within that realm. And so we don't have a large secondary trading market in the ESG space today, and that's something that we have to... To, to improve upon. Hector, what, what are your thoughts? Listen, I, I like to call us the original ESG market. I mean, if you think about it, virtually all of our issuers are in the primary purpose of doing something for the community, doing some social good, developing some public purpose. And so their very essence is to do something that is contributes to ES or G. And so as a result, it's an incredibly target rich area to find that. Um, and and, and, for, and, and so, so from the issuer standpoint, it's what they do. Municipal issuers are in the operations risk business, whether it be curtailing the demographic shifts as a result of managing their business poorly. If you don't have clean water, if you're not insulating people from the risk of climate change, if you're if you're if you're worrying about you know demographics from social inequity, all those issues are going to contribute to long-term downside effects to your to your jurisdiction. As an investor, it's about resilient returns. If I'm going to invest in water projects, the ones that do their job the best, not just cost effectively, but actually produce long-term results and are pro-cyclical to good outcomes, are going to be the best long-term investments. So when it comes to infrastructure investing, especially resilient infrastructure, is a prof- is profoundly you know dependent upon you know the ESG metrics of sorts. And so we think it's really important. We think it's integral to our marketplace, and frankly, it's pretty familiar to us. You know, all of us, it's within our DNA. The problem is. It's a really fragmented marketplace, and so the data set's weak. Um, the issuers really scratch their head around it. They don't understand this language. It's mostly coming from another country, yeah, right? right? And so, you know, I go to sh- no shortage of meetings where someone from some other country tells us how well they do it there and why can't we do it in the U.S. And I have to remind them, well, we have sixty to 90,000 unique cats. I mean, there's so many different jurisdictions, and unlike – you know, a European country where it's a very top-down jurisdiction, either the government letter or regulator, every school district in Texas thinks they're a separate country. 
They're not looking to be di- they're not looking to be dictated to. And so, you know, you know, kind of hurting those cats to be able to kind of put forth good metrics, common metrics can be put together uniformly to create some measurements is definitely an aspirational goal that, you know, we try and advocate for. Gary and I both work in a variety of different um, advocacy groups trying to trying to make that happen. But the other reason it's terribly important is because there's just huge walls of money that care. And while Gary says, and it's really important, this analysis, we haven't noticed a distinction in the price. It's almost less about the price and about the depth, the depth, the depth of capital that becomes available once you're able to make this a scalable, uh, you know, independently verifiable, credible pool for ESG factors is extraordinary. I mean, it starts with a T, not a B, trillions of dollars of care. And that means you're now able to you know, really draw from large pools of capital to attend to very specific problems. And sometimes maybe with capital that's very flexible, that's where we come in. You know, the difference is a lot of our investors who are very sophisticated investors care deeply about this. But if I can't evidence to them the specific scoring or the specific metric, it's hard for them to really look at this as an ESG qualifying investment that might have a lot of capital available to it. And then the last thing I'd say about that is from the issuer side, I always have to remind issuers, it's not about getting paid more because you do your job. It's your job. Their job is to produce good societal results. The, it's really more about, it's in my ways right now, I think that the, the investors are going to start penalizing those who do it poorly. Those who are not addressing the issues well, whether it be from simple disclosure or actually what they do functionally, that's going to start costing them over time. I think that's a great point. The other point I would may, uh, raise, Hector, is that the S in ESG is starting to get a little bit more resonance, right? And so you see uh, the Ford Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, Rockefeller, Bush Foundation issuing huge, large bond deals so that they can leverage their dollars to be able to have a multiplier effect of the good that they're doing. Uh, and so to the extent that that we can, can really open up this marketplace and deepen it, as Hector said, to access these huge pockets of dough, uh, it's only going to not, not be a, a, a good thing for the marketplace, but also for society. So you talked earlier about the need to create a framework that attracts a larger uh, demographic of investors. So how is investor participation in the municipal market evolving, i.e., are there more foreign investors and other non-U.S. taxable investors that are growing more interested in the space? And is this just a new version of non-traditional interlopers or a more seminal development in the space? And my, my view right now uh, um, is that you, the foreign money that you see is basically using just the, their, their American money uh, um, as opposed to really getting the deeper uh, international dollars. And so I, I think it's more interloping at this particular point. I think the Build America bond program or something, Build Back America, it would allow for deep and access. But in candor, there's more to do on the disclosure side on municipal issues, right? Um, we still have a stale financial disclosure system whereby, you know, finance annual financial statements are uh, sometimes years um, in, in delay, right? Uh, and so there, there needs to be a little bit more transparency. There needs to be more investor-friendly websites to give folks real-time information, information about the financial metrics of these issuers. Uh, I am working very, very hard with my issuer clients to, to make sure they understand how to contextualize uh, their, their credit hurdles uh, and credit challenges and, and open themselves up to actively engage um, with investors. And this is important, not only when they're issuing deals, but when they're not in the market. 
because these bonds are being traded and PMs need to know that they don't have any sort of risk. They wake up on in their portfolio and they see a huge uh, pricing differential. So I think there's more work to be done um, in, in the municipal market on disclosure. Uh, I know that the SEC chair is working hard to get that the MSRB is trying to provide those repositories and, and, and portals to get investors information. Um, but I think it's, it's more something to come than whether it is today. What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah I, I, I take a little bit of a different tact, although I generally agree, like a disclosure issue, then Gary is uniquely expertized given his experience at the MSRB on that matter. And what is, what is the art of the possible? But what I think, I think we're starting to see a little more of a permanent residence in our marketplace. Um, we're starting to see people come into our marketplace. Now, they've been, there's a tailwind. You know, there's a weak dollar that makes it attractive from a hedging standpoint. Um, but we've seen now a large amount of index eligible securities get into our marketplace. So, you know, when Build America bonds got into the marketplace, one of the things they did is they fall into the Barclays Ag. And so now we have another universe of securities that are simply doing that. And it's cutting across more and more sectors of the space. And so I do think that it is a very, um, it's starting to become attractive to, to the universe of investors. But I also think that in a world where managers are offering in a world where you're seeing investors who want more absolute return profiles, more asymmetric return profiles, more uncorrelated return profiles. As an alternative manager, we're starting to stick out. We're getting a lot more interesting calls from a large, large global investors who normally would have thought of discarded municipals. It's too small. I don't pay taxes. The information's squetchy, everything's going to, you know, the Meredith Whitney, everything's going to default moment. And we've, we're, we've done a lot of education to really turn that around to get people to realize like it's a scalable opportunity set with a lot of really uncorrelated, um, you know, a really rich, uncorrelated, efficient opportunity set to capitalize on. And, and I think that we're, we're starting to see a much broader participation. This is becoming my goal in life is to move my professional goal in life is to move the municipal marketplace from the children's table to the adult table of the capital markets. And I'm starting to see we're getting invited to the adult table. And I'm seeing, you know, I, I saw the NASDAQ and Life are setting up um, it, networks to be able to list their stuff, also starting about listing bonds that are sustainable purposes. You know, more and more people are trying to galvanize their thinking around how to create repeatable, successful, broader participation in this marketplace. I'm excited about that. You know, we had an, uh, uh, an SFPUC bond, a San Francisco public utility bond, is actually listed on the London Stock Exchange. And so you, you're starting to get a little of that. Hector, I do, I do want to have a question. How are you working with your investors to overcome some of the traditional sort of muni structuring issues, tier and par calls, serial bonds, those sort of things? How, how are you getting your folks comfortable with that? Well, Generally speaking, we see those as opportunities. They create an inefficiency of sorts. And so generally speaking, if we see that, you know, negative convexity, you know, it detracts people from a certain structure and attracts people to something else, we, we capitalize on that relative cheapness. So we'll buy the things that's a little off market because we figure we can manage that risk because we're not long only. And that's okay. the big difference. The bias in most investors in the space Gary, thank you for the commercial. Uh, the bias for most investors in the space is very simply that they are long only and collect tax exemption. And if you can be more than that, if you're unbiased with respect to the tax exemption, and if you can be focused on hedging and creating asymmetry in your return profiles, we think it's a really, really attractive uh, position to, do, to, to take advantage. That said, Gary, it would be nice if issuers appealed more to 
the non-traditional audience, if they weren't so self-interested in wanting just to call all the time and they were willing to be more open about different structures to invite broader participation, again, beating the drum on that point, you know, we need to be a little bit less parochial in our experience in the marketplace and kind of open ourselves up to what other markets and other asset classes are doing. So if we're having a beer and we're talking about this, Heather, you know, I would say to you, my issuers are telling me, yeah, that's great, but show me the pricing differential, right? And so what's happening in our market now, as you know, price discovery is more art than science, right? And you don't know until day of where you're going to end up when whether or not pricing leverage is going to be swung your way. And so it's very hard to move the needle in that way to do these sort of new, 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 new sort of innovative ways of, of marketing yourself if, you, if we can't quantify it. At the end of the day, my, my issuer clients are not paid to take risk. Uh, I grew up as a guy who's developed a lot of structure in our marketplace. And so I've lived with that for a long time. Um, you know, uh, the, the, you're, you're right. It's difficult to create real transparency on that difference, but it's not helped by the legions of people who are uninterested in it. There's a lot okay. of people. Dr. Knows. Oh, oh, yeah. I don't know. Maybe some of the financial advisors exactly, who are yeah. really particularly uninterested in that being an outcome. Yeah. They'd rather just lather, rinse, repeat. Yeah, I think, it's, I think that's, that's absolutely the case. But it's also, it's all, you know, I want to play this a little balance. So it's also a little unfair to ask the issuers to take too much risk. I mean, municipal issuers aren't in the business of taking financial risk. That's not their job. Their job is to make sure the roads are paved and the toilets flush. And, you know, they're in the operations risk business. Like, they're not, you know, we don't hire and elect these people to kind of pick where rates are going and whether they should or shouldn't sell calls. So I don't, want to, I don't want to take away from the fact that it's a challenge for them. It's definitely hard. When I look at a room full of issuers, when I see meet a lot of your issuing clients, you know, I listen, I'm pretty sympathetic. They have really hard jobs. But, you know, the puck is going a different way. We're going to have more credit differentiation than we've had in our market. For, for the last five years, Hector, we had low supply, tremendous amount of demand, and low interest rate environment, right? And so, you know, getting my municipal issuers to understand that that, that is not the, the norm um, is really difficult, that you're not going to have 3% money forever, uh, and, and that you're, not, you're going to pay some pricing differential um, when you have these sort of credit hiccups. I, I tell folks a story. Um, a state of Illinois had a big disclosure to their credit about having delays in their financials uh, for some time. They did a competitive deal right after that, and it was a tighter spread than years prior. Uh, and so there's really no penalty for any sort of disclosure issues, and credit differentiation has not been as penalized as it's going to be in the future, I believe. I think that is, I think we are, I think it's really important, Gary. We are at the precipice of a reversal in, you know, upgrades, downgrades have been two to one for the last couple of years. Right. It's going to be one to two. <laughs> the ratio is going to go the other way. And, and, you know, we're going to have a downward migration in credit quality and, you know, this real increased dispersion for us. That's a tremendous opportunity for the traditional sleep well at night client. It's going to get a little bumpier. I'm not going to say it's a train wreck. It's just going to get a little, little less easy. And investors are not relying on credit ratings just to make buying and pricing decisions, right? So they're kicking that's the right. tires themselves and doing a lot of credit work themselves. And it's not uniform. Uh, and that's going to require our issuer clients to be a little more nimble in marketing themselves. Yeah, Do you I think, think right. the, I'll start with Hector on this. Do you think the municipal lending facility could get extended past December 31st? And if so, do you think there's a possibility that President Biden's, uh, President-elect Biden's administration may advocate for using that program as a financing source for municipalities in order to bypass a potentially Republican-controlled Senate? It's a thorny policy question. I mean, I think the Fed did did what they could do, given some really big challenges. You know, 
A, administering this really diverse universe means you can only do it to a number of people. They, they just don't have – I mean they brought over two experts that we both know, John Bagley and, and Ken Haichu over there, um, You know, guys with real experience. But like it's a really hard thing to administer to this real diverse marketplace with a limited staff and, a, and frankly, a limited mandate. Two is um, – you know, they, they, they're very uncomfortable about being uh, at at, credit, any, at any credit risk. And so they really, really just wanted to kind of, you know, really narrow how they would kind of focus on particular sectors and particular credit entities. But but the other thing, the other thing that was a challenge was they didn't want to be caught facilitating financing to bad political risks. And they didn't want to get in the middle of that political discussion. So the MLF was, you know, a, a reasonable, it was nice. It was, it was nice to see them try to do something. I think there's a little bit been a little bit of mess of representation about how impactful it was. The truth right. was low rates, staggering amounts of inflows, and an enormous amount of of, of issuance moved from the tax marketplace to the taxable marketplace created an equilibrium so that too much supply didn't overwhelm the increasing amount of cash that was coming in at the low rate environment. And that's why we sailed through okay. That's right. But we're not done. I wish the government would acknowledge one problem. The real problem in the municipal marketplace is for that more run-in-the-mill issuer in times of crisis, you know, the marketplace, the, 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 it doesn't have a great liquidity profile to it. That's the bigger challenge. Right. The challenge is most municipal issuers don't need to borrow for a revenue shock overnight. It's not like they're going to sell a division tomorrow or issue some stock. They don't have the tools corporations have. They have to amortize losses. They have to grow their way from, from shocks. And so there's generally a longer duration to the borrowing needs. And in our marketplace, if there's not a bid in the long end, as we saw in March, it can be very, very disruptive. So if the Fed really, really wanted to like cushion liquidity shocks to the marketplace, and they really wanted to kind of, you know, manage investor concern, they would be buying in the secondary, not unlike they did in the corporate marketplace. Of course, in the corporate marketplace, it's a lot easier. They're familiar with it. There's ETFs. You know, they could set up some index profile, and it's all much shorter dated um, duration. In the municipal marketplace, they're just less familiar with it. But the real solution for a federal government uh, you know, intervention profile is to deal with liquidity because our problem is much more acute around liquidity directions. It's, you know, it's like a herd of elephants. They all kind of like are all buying or they're all running a lot of times. And so that volatility and direction um, can be very, very noisy in our space. And so you know, I'd rather see them do that than pretend that they're going to be you know, a, a three-month loan, a three-year loan to like a municipality. And by the way, if you're only lending to 250 of them, it's just not, it just doesn't, it's not filtering through the marketplace that effectively. Gary, your thoughts? I, I, I agree. I, I think, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, actually, as you know, you know, municipal bonds trade the most frequently after, you know, 90 days after the original issuance market. You know, uh, we, we, we hover around $12.5 billion of trades, $35,000 uh, 35, trades a day. So, it, you know, having some stability in our secondary market, as we saw in with the exponential rise in bids and wants during, during the, 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 the pandemic is where we need the most amount of help. Um, the, the, the MLF program is primarily was the lender of last resort. And what it afforded New York MTA, state of Illinois, was more flexibility than actual true cost savings. Um, and so I, I think a little bit more heft in the secondary market would do wonders for our market. Good point. You know, it's really important also you say this because it's happening at a time – here you've heard us talk about a couple things. We've talked about the risk around credit dispersion. 
We've talked, we're obviously in an era where like the need for capital is only growing, right? The infrastructure shortfall is only yawning wider every day. And we're doing so in an environment where the secondary trading activity and the dealer capital is actually thinner than ever. Absolutely. I've been doing this for a little over, for about 30 years, a little over. I'm going to pretend it was less than so I'd look younger. But the truth is, I've never seen the proportion of the market size relative to the kind of liquidity providing capital more upside down. The market is, you know, the, the liquidity capital that intervenes or intermediates risk in this marketplace has never been thinner relative to the size of the marketplace. And we're doing this when we're talking, Gary and I, both about the prospects of maybe $100 billion or $200 billion of additional calendar next year. Yep. It's a, it's a, it's an issue still. We're not we're not out of the woods around around liquidity shocks and credit shocks. And that calendar we, we will be more comprised of new money issuance than in years past when we we're just doing traditional refundings. Um, so there is definitely a need for for more more capital deposits. I mean, we like it because the volatility creates opportunity for us. But if if you want to deal with you know concerns around stability, like people should know, like it's going to be more adult swim next year than it was in the last yeah, couple so, of years. So really quickly, how do you expect some of these major un, unfunded liabilities like uh, pensions and healthcare schemes in you know, the, the places we're seeing in the headlines like Illinois, Chicago, the MTA, how do you expect those to play out? I mean, listen, I think, I think there's a much bigger salient political story around that topic than there is an imminent credit concern. Um, the truth of it is, is while the while the balance sheets in many of these cases are are you know offsides, and it's really concentrated on a handful of people, it's not imminent to fiscal matters next week. I mean, I can't say that uniformly, but you name the big three. You know, there's sixty thousand others that are perfectly fine, and so I don't think that it is a uniform statement that you can make. But the ones that are big are out there are big, and they're problems. I'm not really sure what Chicago is going to do and what Illinois are going to do if they don't open themselves up to pension reform. I really don't know how they can just tax themselves out or, or worse yet, you know, this is one of the reasons we need to think about federal support is, you know, if they, if they have to reduce services, which means firing people and doing less, that's a headwind for growth. You know, you know, I was, there was a statistic the other day about the payroll numbers, about how payroll numbers are over 50% return in the private, but from the lows of this year, they're only up 10% from the lows. So we're still down 90%. I mean, we're still down a staggering right. amount in state local payrolls. And we haven't even begun to incorporate the consequences of fiscal shortfalls. So there's probably more negative job issues in that environment. So with all that, like, you know, there's, there's certainly help that needed, but there's, there's a difference between deterioration in credit and some imminent like shock born out of like the balance sheets, you know, uh, you know, rolling over. And I don't think that that's very likely broadly. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to pretend, I'm not going to ignore that Illinois and Chicago are more front and center around this. I feel, I feel really, I feel, I feel bad for uh, Mayor Lightfoot in a lot of ways. She's a really difficult position because she's so wedded to what the state does and the state didn't pass a progressive tax. They don't want to do a pension reform structure. And that leaves her with very few options. And she's got a whole host of issues to contend with. So listen, they have, they have a particular set of issues. It's not it's not my it's not my favorite credit to you know to talk about because I think it's I, I don't have a lot of the answers um, and frankly I think the answers would come out of a you know some kind of balance sheet restructuring but I'm not interested in it affecting credit it's really a balance sheet for their liability side.
but 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 to that point, Greg, you're absolutely right. I mean, and but one of the things I do applaud uh, Mayor Lightfoot and their administration is the transparency. Right? They are they they offer investors a tremendous amount of yeah. access to the information, um, and 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 giving them forward thinking on what their plans are, and whether it's a scoop and toss strategy on 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 their debt, or whether it's deferring some of the contributions they have to make into their their pension liability. There is an open discussion with investors so they know where the puck is going and making active decisions as to that when they're making buying and pricing um, determinations, which I appreciate. Uh, you know what? That's a really good point, Gary, because as much as they're maligned for their conditions, you know, Carol Brown and Jeannie, who are the, C- the previous CFO and the current CFO, have done a tremendous amount to be available. They yes. put themselves front and center. They run into the fire and, you know, it's burning hot. <laughs> well, we're going to leave it there. We need to give you guys sort of like a weekly municipal market show and just let you guys go because we could talk about stuff for days. Uh, and it's it's such an important market. You know, people think about the municipal market as sort of a boring market in a lot of ways, but there's so much good that could be done with, uh, you know, pension reform, municipal market reform, and mo- a more energetic approach to municipal investing. So thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I think Anthony hopped off, but uh, thank what you, Anthony, for, for beginning the conversation. But we'll have right. to have you guys back maybe once uh once president biden is in office and we start to see some of the gears of of reform taking place in terms of how we approach some of these problems related to both municipal investing and infrastructure as well so thank you gary and hector so much for joining all right john thanks for the time appreciate it all right appreciate it